This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. And welcome to to all of our podcast listeners who get the edited version of the show every week. My name is Thomas Cordell. I'm here with Josh Nelson and Alexandra Hell and Nicholas. Cerise Howard can't be with us tonight, but I reckon the three of us can handle things. How are you all? Pretty good, yeah. Good. Now, tonight on Plato's Cave, we got to revisit William Friedkin's 1971 crime thriller, The French Connection, ahead of its screening at the Essential Independence American Cinema Now Film Festival, because Melbourne needs another film festival. We also take, uh, we'll also be taking a look at the home entertainment release of the Ip Man trilogy of martial arts films. But first, we're going to begin with Green Room. This is the latest film by Jeremy Sauliner, whose previous film was the intense thriller Blue Ruin, which debuted at the Cannes Film Festival almost exactly three years ago. And in fact, Green Room premiered at last year's Cannes Film Festival, and it's just started to get a general release around the world over the past few weeks. Uh, It's been promoted as a horror-slash-thriller, It's about the members of a struggling punk band who in desperation agree to do a gig at a neo-Nazi skinhead bar located in a secluded part of the Pacific Northwest woods. Now, while they are there, the band get into a situation where leaving it will no longer be straightforward. Um, My slightly loaded question to kick off our discussion is, well, first of all, did you enjoy the punk versus skinhead carnage? And was your enjoyment in any way affected by your expectations that you brought to this film having previously seen Blue Ruin? It's interesting that you say that because I know where I'm going with that. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people were there was I mean, I've heard of a lot of people with with pretty much just fatigue burn um, just for the hype about about Green Room. Um, so I went out of my way. I'm actually curious. Do you guys watch trailers? As a rule, as a no. Habit? no. Not as a rule. I mean, yeah, sometimes, but no. I, 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 I didn't see the trailer for this one. I deliberately, like, I normally keep away from from trailers. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite fascinated that you guys kind of intuitively do the same thing. This was a film that I really wanted to keep away from. Like, I really have any... Like, I love Blue Ruin. I, I, yep. Blue Ruin felt for me like there was a lab somewhere that had my DNA and they had, had kind of constructed via computer a film specifically designed to please me. Like, it just ticks so many boxes. Were you part of Plato's Cave when we reviewed no, it? No, well, This no. is before you, because we, mm. we did review it and I think we were all completely blown away. Well, I actually had an interesting path because I'd seen Blue Ruin, I think, at MIF, which I think yeah. was six months before we discussed it when it got a, eventually got a general release. Um, and on the first viewing, and I, I should say I was probably suffering MIF fatigue at that point, I was kind of underwhelmed. I didn't, it, didn't, right, it didn't click. Yeah. And then watching it again, I actually couldn't remember what my problems with Blue Ruin were on a first viewing because I thought it was stunning. And, and particularly the lead actor, Macon Blair, I, have, I pack a bong for Macon Blair as the first <laughs> one of the evening. I, thought he, I think he's such a, a mesmerising, charismatic, underplayed, subtle performer. And it's nice, it's so nice to see him even in, in a smaller role in, in Green Room because I think he's, he's one of the standouts for me in this film. Look, Green Room, um, I'm really glad in a way that I didn't, over prepare if that makes sense to to see green room like i wanted to love it so much but almost too much so by the time i sat down to watch it i really actually knew nothing about it um which for me was kind of perfect because i was so invested in in blue ruin and i really loved green room i'm really 
really impressed by this film and it took me a while and this is one of the experiences I really like where it actually takes me a while afterwards to articulate precisely what worked for me uh, while I was enjoying it. I mean, I think that um, this director, he, he, he has got an almost supernatural ability to create tension. There is a scene in this film quite early on in the film, in the first, certainly in the first 20 minutes, where they do a Dead Kennedys cover. Um, mm. A punk band do a cover of Nazi Punk's Fuck Off. Can you say that on radio? You just it's, did. It's, it's in context. It's in context, yep. Um, and they play this to a room of skinheads. Um, and the tension, it is immaculate. Um, it's a wonderful it's just sequence. An, it's just a beautiful, beautiful sequence. But the way that the way that Sotnir deals with time and space, there's a, there's a moment where there's a party where, and you see a record, a needle hit a record, and then it cuts to the end of the party. Instantly, you just see the record at the end, the needle at the end of the record. So time, there's a passage of tr- time that you're passing through in seconds, but it denotes this really lengthy momentous occasion has happened and I just he's just so meticulous but also really intuitive um but the I mean look I'm this is I guess I guess sort of nitty-gritty stuff that the punks versus skin stuff I find really really fascinating about how he goes about that obviously when you're watching this I think it's really hard not to to think about films like Romper Stomper which I think is one of the the great youth subculture films um, not just Australian, but I think just in general, I think Romper Stomper is a really solid movie. And American History X, I think, is the other one that I was thinking about. I know that there's other skinhead films, but they were the two that really limped to my mind. What I really liked about uh, Green Room that those films did that this one didn't, it doesn't really go into depth about the ideology of the skinheads. It's made implicit by virtue of the fact that they're skinheads and they're surrounded with swastikas. So there's no great speeches about what a great guy Hitler was. It's it's implicit. It very much is that you know I'm taking the Carol Hanich quote out of context here, but it very much is the personal, is the political. These people enact their ideology, and that ideology is shit. Like these are shitty, shitty people. Um, and look, I'm I'm babbling. You please talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I just want to come back to the the, um, the point you made about um, Solnier's the, almost like the confidence with which he directs, and like you know those edits you mentioned. It just struck me, like thinking, I'm still sort of thinking about what it was about this film that worked for me. And the style of direction, even though the, the subject is very different and the approach is very different, but he reminds me of like Shane Carruth, a director who it's a really good comparison. can work with very little and seems to be able to have that confidence to, to pull off something quite solid, quite special, which I think he did with Upstream Colour and certainly with his film before that. And I think this is there's a sort of a comparison between, say, Blue Ruin and this. They're such well-directed confident films like you can kind of feel the director is is on top of the material from the beginning and has the kind of conviction to to sort of see it through and, and he's just going to take you you know you don't feel like oh we're going to be rushed here or this is going to take cheap sort of you know shortcuts um and i think what part of the strength for this even though on, on a first viewing this felt very much like a in some ways a familiar kind of captive horror film um i, I think it has the strength to not show too much for too long. And I think that's the difference between that sort of raft of captive horror films we got, say, within the last five or six years, where it, typically they escalate into just kind of gore-fest. And I think this film manages to mostly avoid that, those trappings. Yeah, I, 
I, I, had, I think I had the opposite experience, unfortunately, to both of you, where I went in full of very high expectations for how much I love Blue Ruin, which I thought was a, just such a mastery of control and tension building and an incredible, incredible gritty realism and plausibility that I've never seen done in a, like a, in a genre film, for want of a better word, in that this was this, this man who was sort of bumbling through the situation in a way that was so plausible and the tension in that film was overwhelming. I had that tension for maybe the first half of Green Room and then it really lost me and I found it became a, a, a fairly generic film that uh, that in, increasingly had had sort of snappy one-liners when people died or and, and, and I lost the sense of, of space and, and rationality for why things were happening. Like, I didn't understand why these people were staying in this place and those people were there and not just coming in and doing this... Um, so the spell gradually drifted away from me. I still recognise this as a very, you know, impressive, solid film, but it didn't meet the very high expectations I had from Blue Ruin. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, that needle on the record um, sequence, an incredible cut. That was my first alarm bell moment because I thought there is nothing uh, smooth or transitional or invisible about that edit. That is a really showy edit. That's a really clever, look what I've done here, edit. And that worried me, and it pulled me out of the, the space of the film. Uh, certainly some of that, you know, that the first, when, when things first start going down, the tension is extraordinary, and some of the first moments of real gore in this film are confronting, and I, and I, I scribbled down something like, this guy is a master of just creeping up on us and suddenly showing us this stuff for long enough to have an impact but increasingly i found this a very generic film that um ultimately for me was enjoyable but disposable i think that record will we'll, we'll focus on that little record moment because it did have a real impact on me on me as well but almost in an opposite way what i found really audacious about it was the complete rejection at the start of the film this is a movie about punks versus skins that you know the classic all-time story of punks versus skins. It's west side story yeah exactly um and it says from the start this is not about music and I thought that was just the audacity of that. It's like the, of not milking that. And I think that the things that are going on in this film with the soundtrack are remarkable. It's not just punk music. The metal that's used in this film, like there's Slayer, there's Napalm Death. It's not a punk film, pers- you know, TM. Um, and I, I, I really, there was something about that shot that really worked for me because it was like a, a kind of really punk rejection of punk in a, I, in a funny way like it was sort of like this is not a film about music i appreciate yeah like, i appreciate the way it was it was about yeah subculture groups and how these groups are defined by things that are way beyond the music like a recurring joke is they're all trying to decide who, who is real punk who is old school punk and then you realize these labels are, are meaningless you know that they all secretly prefer things like prince or um not hall and Oates, madonna, they gets, say? Them, madonna yeah. gets a mention yeah. and um bridge over troubled water people who are they got simon, simon garfunkel, garfunkel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Britney Spears gets a mention, I think, at some point. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, I mean, I I did quite like that gag that these kind of tribal elements and these reasons that we adopt certain peers and certain ways of living, there's a lot more to it than music, and often the music is is, is a secondary thing, and that's certainly what's happening in these groups because punks and skinheads, in theory, like the same kind of music, but they're radically different types of people. I think these are the two things that really struck me about this film and kind of leading on from from that point, Thomas. The, The first thing that really captured me i think in in retrospect was that this was a film that really i can't think of another film recently that that reminded me of that that feeling of being young and thinking you know everything and that lightning bolt moment when you realize that you know nothing and you're and you're completely out of your depth all of a sudden like it's like the world that i live in is not the world that i thought it was and and 
there's a there's that it's so specific to that that kind of early 20s late teens kind of experience that you have that first happen to you and and i think this film really captures that in a way that is is very very memorable and I cannot believe that I'm saying this. This is one of those sentences that you never think you're going to utter, certainly not on radio. Um, that that second half, Patrick Stewart really held it together for me. I um, say that all the time. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a hater. Oh. I thought he was. I mean, I think that, uh, Anton Elchin, uh, Imogen Poots. I think there are some really remarkable all the performances, performances in this film that yeah. are really solid. Yeah. But the way that that um, Patrick Stewart, he's sort of the leader of the um, of the 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 skinheads. You know, he he owns the venue um, that this event these events take place at. Um, so understated. He has his wonderful, I mean, mild mannered, really, like he's suburban a, dad look he's to him. He's a bureaucrat. Him. Yeah. Um, and and that makes him terrifying. Absolutely. The way that he responds to these extreme situations in such a understated way. If they were more overblown, and I think in a way that's where I kept coming back to American History X, which was so overblown. Yep. Um, this is almost the opposite of that, and I found it way more disturbing. Yeah. Patrick Stewart was a, a real kind of draw cut, I think, for that second half when it started to probably lose you a bit, Thomas. I agree with you in one sense, though. This is certainly not a radical genre departure like Blue Ruin was. I think if I had to sort of play Sophie's Choice, my preference is still Blue Ruin. But even at the end, and I was I was a little concerned moving towards the end, is, is there going to be a sting in the tail? Are they going to do something a little different? And there's, even though it's a small touch as opposed to the sort of the... I guess the larger picture we get at the end of Blue Ruin, it was enough to make me go, yeah, there's just, there's just something else. There's, he's, even, he's managed to kind of bring a little bit of his stamp at the end of it. And it was, it was a beautiful moment, the final sort of shot we get in this film. One of the best last lines of a film oh, that nice. I've heard for a really long time. You're given the conversation we just had about, mm. yeah. Yeah. We, we, it's we it's, worth, give it it's away, worth seeing this film for the last line. Yeah. And the last line <laughs> does sum up a lot of what we've been talking about, yeah. actually. Yes. Green Room. Yeah, for what it's worth, I still think it's a very, very good film. I just wasn't one over like so many other people have been, which annoys me. I hate it when I don't get to sort of ride the train like other people. Yeah, (laughs) See, I went into it not even knowing about this train. train. I am the human conga line. You told me we were were covering Green Room and I thought it was the bloody Eli Roth Green Inferno film. I was like, I'm not (laughs) watching that crap. Wash your mouth. (laughs) So thankfully it was Green Room. Planet's Cave where you do not even bother watching Eli Roth films. Three triple R. Now, Essential Independence, American Cinema Now, is a new film festival that kicks off in the five major capital cities this week, as well as screening many new American independent films. It has an extensive retrospective program, including the Essential New York selection of New York set films. So we decided to revisit one of those films, of course, William Friedkin's 1971 crime thriller, The French Connection. It was Friedkin's fifth feature film, but his first major hit, and it paved the way for The Exorcist. I think that's right. Uh, Which he made two years later. The French Connection was also the first major leading role for Gene Hackman. He had had some high-profile supporting roles, but this was his first major leading role. Um, And notoriously, he was far from being Friedkin's first choice at the time. It also starred Roy Schneider and Fernando Rey. Loosely based on real-life stories and real people, The French Connection is almost exposition-free. It's shot like a documentary. It presents police work as messy, morally compromised and often ineffective. It is responsible for a lot of the gritty aesthetic and atmosphere that is now commonplace in so many crime films and television. 
How did you both enjoy revisiting Popeye Doyle and his disdain for people picking their feet in Poughkeepsie? Do you pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? I Josh? do. I do. Yeah. All the time, don't you? <laughs> Careful. That, that, that question is designed to derail you. Have you danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Yeah, I know where you got that one from now. This film is freaking awesome. Hey! <laughs> That's radio. Ding. That's quality radio. Put, put that on a T-shirt. Um, I hadn't seen this film in, well, probably well over a decade. Yes, yeah, I And it was that, that mm. joyous feeling of rediscovering that long-lost best friend that you just forgotten to speak to for the last decade. And wow, yes. yeah. this is this is an extraordinary film, and I think appreciating it on a different level, like on, on just on a structural level and a filmic level, um, even on a, on a just a, a level in terms of the way in which the film contracts time. Like the, fi- the film takes these leaps in time where you sense the investigation sort of dragging on with Scheider and, and, and Hackman, and then you, we, we suddenly hear someone saying it's been two months, you know, you need to you know, wrap this investigation up or else. And it's like that was a most wonderful, like you said, Thomas, expositional free usage of the kind of the, the crime caper. And I think that in a sense, characterises the film as a whole. There's these slow build set pieces and the way in which he uses misdirection, the way you think you're going to get the exciting kind of, you know, car chase or or chase through the streets. And then it's like, I'm just going to pull you back here. I'm going to bring you back into the narrative and then we're going to build again. This is a a masterclass on so many levels of filmmaking. It's that perfect tension for me between... um Feeling that there's nobody behind the wheel. Excuse, it's a it's a chase movie. I know that's a terrible, terrible hey, metaphor to use. But awesome, so you, know. <laughs> you really, I mean, just the way that the camera works in this film, it's it's chaos. You really do feel that, that this is a film out of control. Yet it is totally in in control. Like this is, you know, you are in the hands of a master, which is such a cliche. I think talking about a director of this sort of stature, um, but the, the the tension is perfect. There's a real sense of danger as a, as an audience member watching this film. In that you don't, you're not sure if you can trust the filmmaker to take you where you need to be, and the characters certainly aren't trustworthy. There's this really volatile, insecure position that you are put in in those opening seconds because with an evil Santa, yeah, you know, I mean, the film just sets you up to be disoriented and to feel untethered, um, not just in terms of the ethics of the film. Um, but in terms of genre, the genre of the chase, you know, the kind of caper movie, the chase movie, the cop thing, um, it's just, it's the tension between these is just incredible. Gene Hackman, I can't, I cannot imagine anybody else in this role. I mean, it's just... No, um, and you look at the list of people who it was offered to... And it's like, wrong, 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 Paul Newman, wrong. yeah, yeah. A, look, lot, a lot of actors who didn't want to do it because they were worried about how the character would affect their image. Mm-hmm. And I just... Um, I mean, I think 1971, I'm, I've, I've said this um, on social media quite a lot, 1971 is my favourite year for film. If you go on Wikipedia, have a look at the list of films that came out this year. I don't know what was going on, but it was just, I just don't think there's been a better year for film. And this is the this is the film that won Best Picture Oscar. Yeah, yeah. So this is like the top of already the kind of cream of the well, it was cream a, of the crop. Was like, it that sweet spot between new Hollywood reaching its height right before then the blockbuster era? Began, it could which be. Friedkin was a it big part of with his next film, The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it really was the pick, pick, the, pick, the In- pinnacle internationally of the best though, period like, not, of American even, filmmaking. I mean, I think it's the year that Fassbinder was doing his best oh, work. You're talking so globally. Globally, I think it okay. was um, certainly in America. I mean, you had you know Clute and Elaine May's and New Leaf. I mean, Last we Picture Show, uh, Bogdanovich, Straw, Straw Dogs. Mm. I mean, there's the, it's like a never-ending list of amazing films that came out in this year. Um, but even, I mean, just back to Hackman, I think that he, he really is in two of the best films of the 1970s, this in The Conversation, Coppola's The Conversation. Um, and this is, this is just, 
This is people who are very, very good at their job being extremely good at their job. Yeah, it's remarkable. You can really see... I had a great interview with Freakin recently where um, he'd got his first break doing documentaries for television and that, that, that documentary training is so evident in this film. It's so much of it's handheld. We sort of tend to think of handheld as a European thing or a contemporary thing, but this film, it's all... It's not shaky cam, but you're aware that this camera's constantly moving, so it does really feel like they were out there in the streets almost shooting verite. And, you know, famously, that, that car chase, that amazing car chase underneath the train... That scene is just diabolical. They didn't get permission to do that. They didn't clear the streets. I mean, Friedkin has since said, we were so irresponsible, we could have killed somebody. You feel that, though. That translates yeah. on the screen. You get that in a lot of early Ferrara films, like a lot of low-budget indie stuff yep. as well but to have it in a film that's sort of that high profile you know an Oscar winning film yeah but you see, I don't you know how high the profile the film was at the time until it got released like you know this is part of this independent series mm-hmm. so it just it, it sort of grew in stature because people hadn't seen this kind of thing before it's interesting when I first studied New Hollywood there were a lot of articles at the time trying to split films into the left cycle of films and the oh, right cycle gosh, of films remember, remember this yeah, and, and, yeah, and this, yeah. this is often I'm rubbing positioned. my head already is this like, Robert Kolker he, yeah. he was big on the mm-hmm. left right cycle yeah. and fortunately I think it's all been heavily discredited yeah. and this was often put in with, with Dirty Harry which mm-hmm. Dirty Harry actually has similar themes and ideas to this but in po- possibly a more kind of pulpy way still a magnificent film same, but i think same year too i think same year and also the um, year, yeah. don segal's the beguiled i think came out yeah. in the same year which is I, another yeah k- k- just a killer film but it's very limiting to think of them like this i mean yeah, it, a, a it lot does of harm to not just to the films but also to us as people that want to exactly this binary opposition yeah. which is destroying us all and continues to do so and it's into all these films that suppose so-called left so-called right what they're often about is people feeling marginalized and not belonging anywhere and just everything being compromised and that's what you've got in this film you know the the the, the, the villains the, the, the french villains trying to bring this stuff into america they aren't sort of twirling mustache evil henchmen from a bond film and these cops they're dirty cops they beat people up when they shouldn't gene hackman's character is openly racist it's really confronting to hear some of the stuff he says he's a sleaze he's a drunk I'll tell you what I did think of while, while watching this again after so long is uh, The Wire. I mean, you know, that's a show that's praised for how amazing it is and complex and in terms of the moral character and these kind of down-and-out cops and the, and, and the difficulties of, of, of capturing criminals dealing in drugs. And, you know, I think I've been on the record by saying I like The Wire, but I think it's insanely overrated. After watching The French Connection, I'm going to say again, it's insanely overrated because <laughs> The French Connection did all this stuff first. Well, that doesn't mean it's necessary. It's still a fantastic television (laughs) series, don't get me wrong, but it's not the best thing ever. So I'm actually watching The Wire at the moment, so I'm into the final season of watching that with my partner. Did you get a similar vibe then, watching The French Connection? Oh, it definitely recalled it instantly in terms of the uh, moral ambiguity of the the lead characters, the setting, the kind of the, the grittiness and of... I mean, this is New York, nineteen seventy-one. This is a this is and Brooklyn too. This is a tough, some tough neighbourhoods there. Yeah, this, is, this is not a good time for New yeah, York. They're yeah. um, filming, and you know, this is America in the midst of depression. This is well, still in the midst of the Vietnam War as well. Like, this is a really volatile era of of American politics, and it shines through in, in terms of the ideology. I, I think the ending of this film. With po- the possible exception of the post or credits sequence, is just extraordinary, and I'd completely forgotten how the film ends, which is just a marvelous thing when you come to it and you're like, actually, I have no idea where this film is leading me. Like you said before, Alex, and I think that 
moment in time where we had this sense of, you know, we're going to question the morality of our lead characters. We're going to give the audience some credit and let them have these characters, not give them sort of, you know, two-dimensional uh, hero figures. We're going to question the value of violence, the, the ideologies of, of revenge, the, the kind of the, the authority of certain institutions like the police force, like the government, like the questions circling around drugs. This, to me, represents such an important, potent time in American filmmaking that, by and large, I think has diminished somewhat. I think it's this is such an interesting film to think of in that, that now thankfully out-of-date uh, habit to go for those binary left and mm. right readings. And I think Friedkin's a really important director to think of in terms of that because I think some of his best films are, even if he's tr- consciously trying for one, maybe leaning towards one direction, I think that there's a real ambivalence that really runs through these films. And The French Connection, I think it's really, really very, very, very overt ambivalence um, to what's going on. There's a there's a really strange, almost, I don't know whether lack of engagement is quite the phrase that I'm after. No, I think ambivalence. I'm going to stick with that. He's but it's kind of presenting the situation. It's not saying there is a better solution. Yeah. It's just It's saying... not a social issues film. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's got no interest in being a social issues yeah. film. It's, it's interested in being a really good cops and robbers car chase movie. And, and I mean, and, and that goes right through to the... You know, we're talking about the main cast here, but I think even the even the the supporting cast in this film, some of these characters, the Tony LeBianco, who's one of my favourite actors from this era, his character, I think it's Sal or Sol, mm, he's the guy mm. that um, kind of they first cottoned onto. He's a really fascinating character because you never quite, yeah, I, I, I love the ambivalence of this film, the energy of it, and also the kind of ability of it to kind of step back at the same time. I, it's a very strange tension. And the European influence. I mean, it's interesting watching this film again that it opens in Marseille. We, we establish the, basically the, the, the structure of the narrative or, or the, the, the kind of the hook of the film is established in Marseille and then it moves or relocates to America. Freakin has done this a lot. He does this in Sorcerer. He does this, he did this in Exorcist as well. I think mm-hmm. it starts in Africa or, and, you know, he has this interesting idea of, of trying to create this sort of international relations vibe with a lot of his films that were that he made or produced in the 1970s. Actually, on the back of this, I was so excited, I decided to watch French Connection 2 because I hadn't seen that in just as long, if not longer. And I think it's... I don't think it's a malign sequel at all. I think it actually has quite a, a reasonable critical reputation and it's much deserved. It's John Frankenheimer takes the helm. It's set almost entirely in Marseille and it's another really, really interesting film, primarily because it doesn't try to just emulate... Freakin's film, it actually tries to do something quite different. And I think it's, you know, in, in French Connection, we have the kind of idea of the, you know, the French are in America, but the focus is on that sort of anti-hero cops in, in a way. This one is the, the um, Popeye going to Marseille, and he's the outsider now. So it places this idea of the American in a very different lens. I thought that was a really fascinating I've always companion mean, piece. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've always meant to. I haven't yeah. seen it in years. But I've, and I've heard it stylistically very different, but in all interesting good ways. Yeah, yeah. it's a really, really... When Frankenheimer was good, like he, he could he could churn out a good film. Like yeah, that. I mean, he's, we'll have to find an excuse to revisit one of his films soon. Seconds. I'm up for seconds, I'm yeah. Up for seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll third seconds. Just, but just, I'm just going to repeat, though, that, that emphasis on the ending of this film. It's so brutal and cold and harrowing. I'd forgotten how chilling it is and the soundtrack I, I almost played it tonight actually but it's too bleak <laughs> it's out, out of context it's a really chilling disturbing film and weirdly ambiguous too like what is that final sound we hear what the hell happens and it just ends I mean this is American filmmaking at its most inventive and, and sort of radical within a mainstream uh, confine it's extraordinary if you've never seen The French Connection you've got an opportunity to see it on the Seeing big screen Seeing it on the big screen was, 
I can't even compre- I've never seen it on the big screen and I think that um I mean that alone is a highlight of this festival. Three Triple R The three films in the Hong Kong Ip Man trilogy are all directed by Wilson Yip and star actor and martial artist Donnie Yen. Uh, He's a contemporary of Jet Li, who's probably not as well known in the West, but very much of similar stature and and era. The three films made in 2008, 2010 and 2015 are heavily fictionalised accounts of the life of Yip Man a master teacher and practitioner of Wing Chun. Uh, His students included Bruce Lee. So the real-life Yip Man, his life has been portrayed on screen several times, mostly over the past decade, including Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, which we discussed here on Plato's Cave, I think, a couple of years ago. Now, the first Ip Man film is set in China and includes uh, the period under Japanese occupation during World War II, while parts two and three is set after Ip Man has resettled in Hong Kong. All three films more or less deal with Ip Man's uh, attempts to restore order within his own community and then become stories about him defending the honour of Chinese martial arts in the face of um, an oppressive foreign force. But the focus is ultimately on the martial arts. And as somebody who adores Hong Kong martial arts films, especially from that glorious period in the late 80s and early 90s, I really enjoyed these films, parts one and two especially. How did you go with the the Ip Man trilogy? I've been... I used to love these films, like that era that you mentioned. I'm, you know, living in group houses, everybody's into it. I haven't... I've just sort of lost my I've lost my way I've sort of lost the thread and I just I just realized watching this I haven't seen a film like this for years I just I don't know why it just sort of fell off the radar and I thought oh I'm not really going to have the the level of production didn't continue though yeah. like in the 90s a lot of these actors went to America a lot of the production methods changed Maybe CGI came what it, in and what heavily, it was yeah. and I, I just thought oh, I'm not really going to have an entry point aside from Donnie Yen who I have to say it's such a cliche but every time I see him in a film I think of the phrase his smile lights up the room he's such a beautiful screen presence I'm just besotted with him but I was thinking I'm not going to have any entry point I don't know anything about this director and I looked him up he did this amazing Wilson Yip did this amazing late 90s zombie comedy film called Bio Zombie, which nobody knows except for me, nope. just one of those obscure <laughs> Alex things. And I thought, Bio Zombie? Like, I'm probably the only person that's that come to... an Alex thing, yeah. <laughs> I've probably come, like, the only person that's come to Ip Man going, by the maker of Bio Zombie. <laughs> so that, was, for me, was the stamp of approval. Um, Josh, <laughs> see if you can better that. Yeah, I can't. I don't think I can better that. Um, Look, I haven't seen a lot of these films either. Um, I, I was mixed on The Grandmaster. I thought it had some striking sequences. I can't get the sequence of the train station in the snow out of my head. It's one of the most beautiful and, and memorable uh, cinematic sequences of, of the last few years. And interesting reading a, a little about the background to these productions, there was some legal action between Wong Kar Wai and Yip's films, I think, predominantly related to the fact that they were both making Yip, Yip Man films at the same time, but also because of the title. I think this was originally going to be called The Grandmaster Ip Man. And Wong Kar Wai was like, no, that's our title. You know, ditch the first part. And, of course, his film was, I think, you know, laboured in production hell for years. Yeah. There were other ones, too, around this time that got released by other directors. And this is yeah. what leads me to something that I found really striking beyond the extraordinary fight sequences in this film, and that's the extreme nationalistic sentiment. This is... This is Red Dawn. This, to me, is, in terms of values and ideology, so close to the excesses of the Reagan-era American kind of rallying cries. And I'm trying to think, I wonder what it is that this figure has 
re-emerged 60, 65 years down the track as a sort of a, a symbol of national pride and, and nationalism, particularly anti-Japanese sentiment. I know these countries um, have a, an ongoing volatile relationship in terms of their foreign policy. And I think there's something about this figure and, and even just the, the way in which um, Kung Fu becomes a kind of a, a medium for expressing nationalism and workers' revolution. I mean, there's some scenes in here where, where Ip Man teaches the workers at the kind of the cotton factory, the clothing factory... Beautiful scene. ...to, to learn the ways. And it was like, this is almost like a propaganda film, not in, a, in an offensive way, but this feels like, uh, you know, unmistakably nationalistic in a way that would probably make Michael Bay blush in, in some ways. All three have the same thing. I right. think it's the third one with... Um, who's the guy in the third one? Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson is, 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 is the, the foreign villain devil. In the third and one. they even they actually, translate as foreign say, devil. Yeah. They actually use the word for, foreign devil. The second one is the same. Like each one is about going head to head with a quote unquote foreign devil. It's not subtle. But they're totally... I mean, I think that this is one of those those trilogies that the... I, I think the first one is close to uh, immaculate as you'll get. The, the set design alone, um, I was particularly... I mean, aside from the action sequences, I love the wife, uh, Lin Hung, who plays the wife. She's just such an amazing character. Um, I love the family dynamic throughout this yeah, series. Yeah, that's interesting because I think she's yeah. a rubbish character. Me too. Oh, I really liked her. I think all she does is whinge about him not being home enough and then later going, oh, he was right all along. I was wrong to want him yeah, to be home. I found really un- that uncomfortable, those yeah. sequences. I just like the banter between them. I just, I really, yeah, I, th- I thought she was great. She, she was lovely um, to look at, but I thought in the film she was no, just, just a nag. I just like the, da- the dynamic. <laughs> I was um, waiting for her to so bust much... out some moves, like she's been hiding onto this secret <laughs> power punch that her husband's taught her and that she's going to unleash on the Japanese army. I think that um, the second one, I think, had the better action sequences. Um, that was the one with Sammo Hung in the, in the second yeah. one, and it's just gorgeous seeing Sammo Hung in full flight. The big sequence um, between Donnie Yen and Sammo Hung is divine in the like second a, film. They're on like a table, like they've, a, they've an got a state balance on this table. Yeah, yeah. It's just gorgeous. The third one, I think, is the weakest of yep. the three, but it's nice to see it kind of rounded off. But I, I really like the first one. I thought the first one was certainly the strongest. I would actually argue don't bother with the third film. It took a bit of the shine off for me. I yep. thought it got really... I found Mike Tyson really it hard got silly, to deal with. Yeah, and it got melodramatic. Yep. Um, I think the first two are fine. I mean, the, the, the second film becomes Rocky Four in, in that he goes up against um, an arrogant British boxer. And this is the time when the British are coming into Hong Kong as well, so it's all very symbolic of maintaining... Attaining Chinese pride. Um, I think what... It, yeah, the word nationalism didn't cross my mind in watching this with the first film. I know it's full on, but the, but China was invaded by the Japanese and heavily brutalised. I mean, it's different to say the kind of Michael Bay Red Dawn type stuff, which was based on paranoia, which never came to fruition. But this is historical fantasy. I mean, n- none of what yeah. we see in the first film is actually historically accurate. There is a figure called Ip Man who existed in this time in Chinese history. Yeah, it's heavily embellished, but the Japanese did brutalise the Chinese in World War Two. I mean, this stuff isn't invented. Yeah, but the film's not really about that. It's it's about his character and, and using his life as a catalyst for nationalistic sentiment, and it's doing it not in 1940s. It's doing it in 2010, 2015, 2008. And I think it's tapping into something that's very much present, not about really, it's not really about 1940s at all. I think it's very much about something that's and going I think, on politically I think that now. that's validated because the same recipe is, is replicated in two and three. Like they're, they're exactly the same kind of films, I guess, in a way. And yeah, it's, you, it's, certainly. It's Itman um, versus Foreign Devil. I'm not saying like, that, that necessarily weakened my appreciation of the film. Yeah. Like on a spectacle level, I was enthralled by those fight sequences. But when you have a closing credit sequence in which 
China takes credit for defeating Japan and Japan supposedly surrendered to China in August the 17th, 1945, you have to go, well, that's just a flat-out lie. Like, that's insane. Yeah, but uh, the point I'm trying to make, I think, is a big difference between the paranoia you had in Reagan type American filmmaking well, let's say and, Pearl and a Harbor Chinese then. film. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably an equally film, which is another historical fantasy in the way Bay makes that film. A Red Dawn is an excessive example because you're yeah. right, it's not based or anchored in any historical reality, but, you know... The thing with Pearl Harbor, though, is that it didn't have Donnie Yen standing there really calmly <laughs> and saying, I want to fight ten men. If only And that then happened. fighting ten men. Because I honestly think, in retrospect, that's what Pearl Harbor was missing. <laughs> Among many other things. <laughs> I never subjected myself to Pearl Harbor, but oh. yeah. Donnie Ian's gorgeous. He, he, he's beautiful. a beautiful performer. So much and, energy and light that just And I'm glad they cast a, an older man as well, because Ip Man, when he went through all this, was sort of a bit later in life. And the film doesn't actually shy away from the fact he was living a life of luxury and privilege, uh, which all changed under World War II. I found and the class stuff super interesting across all three films, actually. Yeah. Because you see mm. him very quite... You see him quite wealthy, and then you see him quite quite poor. And that, yeah, yep. they've taken liberties with that. Apparently he was a policeman. He actually... Oh, really? And it's interesting because the policemen, policemen, the policemen characters, the policemen in the film are despised. So there's some interesting kind of ideological reversions going that on. That changes too in the second film though. There, right. there is a sense of there's the good cops and the bad cops. Huh. And um, the, 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 the cops under the British are certainly all corrupt, but there's enough good cops in the system still fighting on the side of the Chinese. The other really notable thing, in, especially in the first film, is a disdain for, I think, technological advancement, especially when Weaponry. So guns are really only villains and weak people and cowards use guns, and we see that both. And that's cross cultural. And that's cross cultural yeah. too. And like so, uh, unknowable, ignoble. Yeah. What's, how does how does language work? Ignoble. <laughs> ignoble. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, this the, is good radio. The, the sort of the, 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 the really terrible Japanese two I see uses a cop, and the Chinese uses a gun. <laughs> uh, and the, 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 uses the, a cop gun. The, the heavily compromised Chinese cop uses a gun as well. But um, you know, Ip Man just maintains his that cool. That is a and beautiful sequence where he snap he snaps the. Uh, yeah. I don't even know what that part of the gun is called. The barrel. The barrel. Thank mm. you. No, the, the rotating bit in the middle. Mm. Is that the barrel? Yeah, it is. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I think actually the translator figure who was formerly the cop in the first one. I really like his character arc in the first one. I think it's interesting because he looks or he's set up to be the kind of the the dope, the angry, you know, um, symbol of authority, and he progressively becomes a far more interesting, complex and, and sympathetic character. That, well, that's the... Yeah, and that's... Most Chinese characters in this series, even the so-called villains, throughout the films have a point where they sort of see the light and if they were morally compromised or working on the wrong side or trying to cause disharmony, they all end up all fighting together. And I think that is pulled off much better in the first film. All the narrative threads come together so much more satisfyingly in the first film. In the second film, there are some really weird narrative threads that go absolutely nowhere. There's a character introduced in the second film who is prominent in the first, and he's now he's now a very damaged, uh, mentally unstable character living on the street, and we introduce to him in the first ten minutes, and then we don't hear anything about him until the last Was ten minutes. Was that the minutes. same actor? I think the, it was, right. yeah. I think he, so, he, he, he just spent so the different. whole film eating a roast duck, I think. He just sat there. Which, to be honest, what, that's what I was doing when I was watching yeah. it. So. And th- th- there's a reference to the film where you see him stealing a roast duck and I was just sitting there thinking, I guess he's still eating that roast duck <laughs> because all this stuff's going down and we've never seen this guy again. It's so corny, but I fell so hard for the Bruce Lee stuff in this. Like, it's not done in a subtle way, but every time there was the reference to Bruce Lee, I'm like, yay, Bruce Lee! Yeah, Bruce Lee's like, a little boy in the second film. 
Wong oh, and just, maybe was the twenty something in the third film. I was in tears yeah. in, when he when there's that slight reference in the second film, and there's there's a, some photographs I think in the first film. Yeah, the post credit sequence. They're all yeah. very slight references that he's part of this story, but it's enough for me. It's just like you know. Red flag and a bull. I, I do in. want to go back and watch some more Bruce Lee because he has something that Donnie Yen reminds me of, which is the ability to just like stop and smile and the disarming sense of humour and the extraordinary physicality. I mean, it's what makes like I was, uh, you know, it was utterly breathtaking some of the, the choreography in this film. That's exactly the word that I was thinking of. And I think that's, I mean, Bruce Lee's background as a dancer. Donnie Yen is a choreographer. Um, I mean, that's, that's what he is. I mean, that's what. I mean, you know, it's such a cliche talking about action choreography, but watching Donnie Yen in full flight. But all it's, these guys, ballet. they're highly like, trained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it ballet. It's, it's it's just exquisite. It's very it's different to what we have. The yeah. speed in this is just. I mean, the violence is awesome, but the speed with which the movement happens is just absolutely breathtaking. Without feeling like the film's been sped up to kind of give no. an artificial sensibility, mm-hmm. which yeah. is often what you get in American films. Yep. Yeah, and the, the, the editing serves the choreography. It doesn't dazzle you or try to cover up for the fact that it's just stunt doubles. You know, all these people, they're doing the performances themselves, and editing there is to enhance that. I would recommend you check out uh, Donnie Yen's 1993 film Iron Monkey. That was sort of his big one. So this was kind of coming to the end of that real peak period of martial arts film but Iron Monkey's a great one um uh, who, who did that no it was, it was written and produced by Sui Hark who's a big figure in Hong Kong cinema but that's a that's a great one um I, I could just rattle off names of martial arts films I, I adore all night but yeah um, but you didn't see Bio Zombies I so didn't see Bio Zombies so I guess <laughs> or Pearl Harbor or Pearl Harbor so <laughs> Sorry, I, I guess yeah. I can just go and eat a roast duck <laughs> We better finish up. Green Room is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Rialto Distribution. The French Connection is screening Sunday 22nd and Sunday 29th March at Palace Cinema Como as part of the New York retrospective program in the essential Independence American Cinema Now Film Festival. So you can go to essentialindependence.com. I think just .com for more details. And the Yip Man trilogy is available on home entertainment as a trilogy box set and as individual films through Mad Man Entertainment. You have been listening to Alex, Josh and Thomas here on Plato's Cave. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.